This episode is brought to you by Liquid IV. Guys, if you don't know what Liquid IV is, well, buckle up because I'm going to throw you a game changer. Liquid IV is a hydration multiplier that not only tastes great, but is a non-GMO electric light drink mix. Powered by cellular transport technology to deliver hydration to the body faster and more efficiently than water can just do alone. One stick contains three times the electrolytes of traditional sports drinks with five essential vitamins. Now, I pride myself on telling you about things that I either already like or just use in my everyday life. And I have to say, I've actually been a fan of Liquid IV for a long, long time now. I use it for everything from, you know, just long runs to stay in shape, all those late nights with those after hours or just when I'm feeling a little dehydrated. I turned to it so it could just, my God, set me straight, make me feel like a million bucks again, and just get me ready for the day. So please head on over to their website. That's liquid-iv.com to check out their amazing line of products. And get this, when you use promo code Art of the Beholder, all one word, you'll get 20% off your order. Now, if you need a little direction on where to start, I recommend Lemon Lime. Guys, you're going to love it, won't be disappointed. So please give it a shot and get more fuel for life's adventures. Now, back to the show. Greetings and salutations, all you beautiful people, and welcome to another episode of Art of the Beholder, a show dedicated to all things eclectic in the world of art, where we do deep dives into deep cuts and help you understand why damn things matter. I'm your host, Novo Day, and today we're going to be talking about art in film, focusing on Quentin Tarantino's movie, Death Proof the one that doesn't get a ton of love. But I would argue, and this is why we're talking about it today, it deserves a lot more of your attention and a lot more love. To hash it out, of course, I am joined by one of our executive contributors, my favorite vanishing point, Mr. T-Buck. Welcome, Buck. Thank you. Uh, And welcome to everybody's favorite game, how many times T-Buck can hit his mic boom in a recording session. (laughs) You're a little gravelly too. I'm a little, a little gravelly. A little today. Wah-wah. <laughs> yeah, it's got. He I've was got, up partying last night. He's, you know, he's our international. I've got like man a of little mystery, bit of so. a, a, shockingly, a little bit of a cold. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's where that that gravel it's comes where the from. Gravel well, let's comes use from. it. Yeah, make it sexy. Let's use right. it in the, in the show here. So, uh, you know, Death Proof is a fascinating part of Quentin Tarantino's filmography and of course in this show we're going to do deeper cuts than most we could have picked pretty much anything from his filmography to talk about we love a lot of his work but this one god you know if we picked uh, his earlier work there's been what a million shows already million youtube shows or podcasts that have dissected all of that kind of shit but death proof for some reason just does not get the love so that's my thesis it deserves more love um part of the reason is uh it doesn't get as much love is how it was released, Mm, how it was produced, some of the uh, marketing that was involved, things like that. And because of it, it was a commercial flop. Um, Though I think I, I I assume they've recouped their costs in later years with things like DVD sales, Blu-ray sales. I I imagine they've done just fine. Those goddamn studios. Uh, But um, it's, it's yeah, it's it's the cousin that we forget about. And I I would argue, especially seeing it in a different lens in today's uh cultural landscape, um, uh, I think it's it's still really good work. Mm-hmm. 
Um, some of his sometimes some of his best work, I think, uh, can be seen in a piece like this in tidbits. We talked about this a little bit before we uh, record started recording the show here. Me and T Buck kind of talked about how you know it's it's like the king of limbs, if you will, of <laughs> Tarantino's work. Uh, and part of that part of part of that lack of love is purely because of the the lack of the financial success that it got. And so of course when things aren't a finan- financial success in Hollywood, it gets lumped into this kind of bad category, a letdown, like just people didn't like it, but not enough people really saw it, I yeah. think. It needed time to breathe, it needed time to age, and seeing it again, uh giving it now really the closer inspection it deserves. I, I'm really excited to talk about it today. So let's let's take a look and discuss Death Proof. But of course, before we go into it, we need a little context. We need a little background. So it was released in April 6th, 2007. And this is, uh, again, this is what I hinted at. This was the beginning of, I think, some of the problems for this movie. It was designed to be a theatrically released double feature in the vein of the grindhouse movies of the 70s if you don't know what grindhouse movies are those were exploitation films those were b movies c movies that did not get a commercial release like uh, a lot of you know the big hits the blockbusters of their time and so they were given they were passed around in these uh, smaller uh kind of uh you know theaters midnight to, movies to, yeah to bring it to audiences yeah. and this is this is pretty much an american thing the double feature and we'll talk about this a little later because part of the worldwide release international release they were separated in two different movies but they were supposed to be put together uh and seen as this this one piece this one entity he did this with longtime collaborator robert rodriguez uh robert rodriguez did the first film of i I like the little flair you put on that Rodriguez, ah, yes, and um, I'm a big fan of Rodriguez's, you know, um, Desperado, Machete. Uh, he, I, I've, I've followed his his career for a long time. We'll probably do a show on him eventually, uh, but this is maybe a little hint to his career. Uh, and obviously, he's been a longtime friend and collaborator with Quentin Tarantino. And the actual piece together was called Grindhouse. It wasn't the separate movies, even though the piece today is just about Death Proof. Which, which was the, the the second of the two films that was seen in the Grindhouse entity mm-hmm. together. Now, uh, we talked about this a little bit. The uh, This was an homage, if yeah. you will. This was a, uh, a throwback to a lot of the stuff Rodriguez and Tarantino grew up with, which was uh, slasher films of the 70s and, like I said, exploitation films of that era as well. And God, Jesus Christ, Buck, when I was doing the research for this, there is so many different subgenres of exploitation films. Oh yeah, you know, there's like women in prison. There's the the slasher films, like this one is black uh, giving homage to black exploitation. I mean, it, there's sex exploitation. There's just so many things, and then that would, you know, of course, that would there would be, I would say, a thin line between. Not a thin line. There's there's a hard line too of where it would turn into snuff films almost, where some of these things we didn't know. I think a lot of people seeing them, if they were made to look incredibly real, uh, they didn't know if they were real, you know. Yeah. And then some were, 
you know, some were investigated as real pieces. And those are normally called snuff films where it's completely illegal. It's not a fictional, it, you know, where these films, even though it's, yeah, sexploitation, blackploitation, whatever the, whatever the category is, it's still fiction. It's still made up. It's still movie magic, right? Yeah. And that's where we're going to, what we're going to focus on with Death Proof. The film stars Kurt Russell, Zoe Bell in her first role, and Rosario Dawson. Now, uh, I wanted to start the discussion section, Mr. Buck, with I wanted to examine why this guy flopped. And I think I already I already hinted at kind of my thought process with it. Part of the reason was the marketing and the release. Mm-hmm. It was very bloated. I actually I don't know if you knew this. I actually saw this when it first came when out. When it came out, opening yeah. weekend opening weekend with my girlfriend at the time. It just to put it in perspective, and then I'll, I'll give you the floor. Uh, she fell asleep. <laughs> my girlfriend at the time <laughs> it was so long it was so bloated she fell asleep and i think that's why we see a 65 percent ron tomatoes to this day yeah no i i, I can see that i i think so i, I have a couple theories yeah one it's it's too blo- bl- bloated um especially in you know in a lot of these uh b movies or midnight films movies where you would you know, double features which I actually kind of grew up watching a lot of these. Yeah, um, this is a very much an American thing. Yeah, that's my, why they had to separate them in international markets. My, uh, like, what's a double feature? Yeah, and, and, and it was help. It was kind of bring people, and you got to remember too, when when they would do this, this was before cable, and you, right. you still had three channels. I mean, cable at least when it was coming out, it was in its infancy. So, yeah. um, growing up, I actually was was uh introduced to uh my stepdad was you know he watched a lot of these movies and kind of is the same age as tarantino so i grew up watching you know kung fu movies um yeah like this um uh, if for those of you remember uh mst3k mystery science theater 3000 um Hell monster yeah. vision on tnt with joe bob briggs <laughs> oh my um, gosh, yeah. you know a lot of this so so i think why i why i'm saying this is i think the people that saw it got it but it was a little yeah. too inside baseball for a lot of people like if i i didn't know i didn't pick up on all the references like i didn't understand about the missing reels um why the the film and and one of the things that was interesting to me the first half of the film looks really damaged and worn and used and they purposely made it look like that but the second yeah, half doesn't and we'll talk about it yeah. a little more in detail when we get to um diving into all of the intricacies that made this movie uh an homage yeah so they purpose purposefully made it look damaged broken uh missing reels things like that well in the uh, in the grindhouse version there's missing reels but in the international version the one that's just a standalone movie there's no missing yeah there's reels no stuff. missing reels in it yeah um, and I actually had to look it up while we've been talking, but the original, so the, the double feature version, the Grindhouse actual original uh, vision was 191 minutes. So over for three hours. For, for everything? For both. For okay. both. For the Grindhouse feature. So that's uh, Planet Terror, um, some, tra- <laughs> some fake trailers, and we'll talk about that later, and, uh, some, uh, and then Death Proof. 
uh, to bring it together as as a final package. Yeah. That's why my my girlfriend fell asleep. <laughs> I think by 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 death proof, I I could hear her literally snoring in the theater. Oh, that's that's me. that's amazing. Uh, and yeah. and also it was it, it's hard for theaters. You gotta you, you gotta understand the there's a business side to theaters. They want to show as many films a day as possible. So this is why you hear about studios and some films jumping in and saying you have to cut it down to this much, this much right. time. Right, exactly. Because there's yeah. a business side behind that too, and putting in it's that's why you don't see very many movies over two hours. Um, and 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 when you're getting up to that three hour mark, that it's a rare exception. It's it's like a Tarantino or something like that, or a you, limited. You movies. almost never, yeah, you almost never see this no. anymore. Something that runs over. Hate, Hateful hours. Eight was probably one of the was last up there. ones. Um, but that was also kind of. There's also this and, novelty uh, side coming back in the film, like with Hateful Eight. I believe he shot it in seventy millimeter. Um, yeah, and I think so on actual film, they actually rented out, and I actually went and saw it um, at a theater here in in. And they had an intermission. Had an intermission, but they also had the old projector. Get some snacks. They had the seventy millimeter yeah. projector that they actually took around to different cities and stuff like that. So it was it was it was cool. So yeah, there. I guess the the point is, yeah, there was a lot of extra things probably going on behind the scenes that we probably still to this day don't exactly know why it wasn't as commercially successful as it probably could have been, especially when you pair it up to all of his other movies. Yeah. I mean, they, they made a ridiculous sum of money and they were uh, fairly low international budget markets. All of them. Yeah. And uh, exactly. Um, compared to this one. And I think a part of that is, is in, yeah, all of these, uh, promotional tactics and and how it was released and things of that nature. So uh, from there, let's let's go ahead and 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 really dissect this guy. I th- I think we need to start with the heart and soul of any uh, film or uh, fictional piece, and that is the writing mm-hmm. and the characters. So I feel like even the writing itself was uh, designed to be a little bad, uh, for lack of a better word. I mean, yeah. I remember thinking how. How characters were thrusted into the next arc of the narrative, where literally to convince uh, in the and, and this was you know so most most movies if you don't know are written in three acts right you have your setup you have your conflict you have your resolution kind of acts this one really only has two acts yeah it really has a setup and a payoff and it, like and they marry each other very well they marry each other because so yeah they. Uh, and this is where I want to. I have a series of questions that um, I think will help really dissect and help to discuss this movie because, and T Buck doesn't know this, uh, he, he didn't get to see these beforehand. So this will definitely be organic because we need to talk about the fact that this is a female driven, female centered story. Mm-hmm. And even in. This was 2007, like I said, and even in 2007, we were still in this age of it was pre Me Too movement, pre you know, um, it was still kind of, you know, Hollywood still was still in this autopilot zone of making movies cater towards men and every you know, like there would there if there was a female lead, she would be like a Mary Sue or it would she would be the only female in the whole universe kind of thing, like Alien, uh, stuff like that where. Uh, or she was this, you know, yeah, this un, un, uh, this 
unstoppable force, if yeah. you will. You know, they weren't three dimensional. They weren't real women uh, that other women could could look up to and be like, okay, that's that's me on screen, essentially. And um, it was part. God, it's so hard to explain. So it was part you know, female empowerment, but then there was also hypersexualizations of these characters at the same time. So my first, my first question for you, T-Buck is, would this get a different viewing critically speaking, if it was, if it was made today, you know, post me Too, if it, if it came out, would it, would it be this looked at as this mirror since it was designed to be kind of bad, you know, yeah. these characters were designed to be hypersexualized because on one side, and this is, I guess this is a two-parter question. On one side, it is, um, it's clearly a mirror, yeah. you know, and how we're hypersexualizing these kind of female characters. But at the same time, there is a part of me that's like Quentin Tarantino has, <laughs> does have a history of, um, oh God, how should I put Pushing it? Pushing the envelope. Not necessarily. Yeah, and not necessarily toxic masculinity, you know, but um, there there has been there has been criticism. Well, there. I'm not going to say that, but I would say other critics have said that. So I guess where is where's the line between uh, this is social commentary and this is maybe a writer director just wanting to see some ass. So so th- this kind of is an ever evolving discussion with Tarantino in general. I think in the 90s it had to deal deal more with race. Um, especially yeah. if you because th- there's a lot of n words, you know, being thrown and, out, and there was a lot of criticism with guy with writing for black actors. Yeah, t- Tarantino, especially in Pulp Fiction, it seemed like he just enjoyed saying n bombs. Um, <laughs> and then if you think of like Jackie Brown and things like that, like there's definitely he's always kind of pushed another underrated. Yeah, that one know, movie was fantastic, and and it, it's kind of also relates to kind career. of this in a little bit because you know jackie brown pam greer being in a lot of the um kind of the strong female he was in expo- black exploitation exploitation you know yeah yeah stuff growing up so i that's why she was cast but yeah and and i think it, it, it's hard for me let's do the first one first how would it be viewed today if this was released this probably not this year maybe a year ago before the pandemic yeah i think I think it would it would draw very heavy criticism. I don't think you would probably see, especially the same actresses that are working in it, probably supporting it as much. Especially, I'm thinking Rosario Dawson. Um, yeah, you you would probably get a little bit of pushback. The dialogue might have been a little different. Um, but I think if you put could it, it in, be seen as a uh, could it be seen the other way? Yeah, where it, it was a female empowerment type, because yeah. that's what it is on in one on one hand. Yeah, I think you would maybe change some of the subject matter. I think the, I think the one that probably would be the biggest problem is the first act, especially when they're talking about the radio um, that their friend will give you a lap dance kind of thing. I think. Yeah, I felt like the lap dance scene was pushing, um, especially in today's in today's culture. Climate, yeah, I it would. I, I think a lot. I would still feel. I even kind of cringed when I saw it, and I feel like it would really not. It would. It would be almost in bad yeah, taste, probably. And in, in the and if you put it in the frame of what was trying to be achieved here, and I, I don't think. But they didn't need to see. But they they show the entire lap dance like for a full song. I, know. I feel like they could have, you know, just like a sex scene. Sex scene, you can hint at what happens and then cut to the next 
Well, but this scene, is Tarantino. Right? Yeah, this is Tarantino. And and do I think he was just trying to like, you know, he's a horny dude trying to show off like some <laughs> No, I think what he was trying to do is he was trying to show like Hey, and back in when I was a kid, when I watched these movies, when I was younger, th- they had scenes like this and this is what they, they would show. So, so you're more leaning on the side that this was still smart writing and this was done purposefully to show, uh, to get that kind of a reaction out of the audience. Yeah, I think it was more, I just, I hope, <laughs> but to me, to me, it seemed more like it was, it was done intentionally to to try to fill the in vain of of what these films were what these yeah. movies were yeah. so yeah let's uh, let's talk about more of the writing uh in terms of yes trying to create an exploitation film in modern era with big budgets and things like that because so yeah the first act had these kind of hypersexualized female characters um it was still like this female empowerment in a way but i think there's a lot of social commentary on uh pushing that to the forefront and of course wanting to and and what you're talking about wanting to show that whereas the yeah okay other half the other half of this coin was these not sexually sexual well i will say one thing he (laughs) i think he has a thing for feet oh the 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 very first scene is yeah, I think he's oh, yeah. got like is, a little bit a of a common... foot, foot fetish. So maybe, so maybe this that's is a common thread. Yeah, I and and I'm thinking like of just like going back to even um, Kill Bill, and there's that whole scene where she's trying to move her toe. I think I think he might have a little little foot fetish thing. I don't think it's little, and I don't think it's a secret. I feel like once fucking uh, was it Brad Pitt? There was someone uh, during the acceptance speech at some awards ceremony. Uh, I I want to say it was Brad Pitt. Someone correct me if I'm wrong. Where uh, you know it was for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. He was accepting. Someone was accepting uh, their award. They're giving their speech, and they fucking talked about it. Yeah, they're like, "Well, I want to thank <laughs> you know, I want to thank all my co my co hosts and all my or my my um, you know, all of my fellow actors and all of my fellow actors' feet." And like shit like that, <laughs> where like he was just really fucking on a on a big scale, yeah. Uh, kind of you know really uh, teasing, uh, <laughs> joking about this clear open secret about his foot fetish. So yeah, no, and um, and and the weird thing is too when I was watching this. Speaking of that, not to get off subject, but. It's still weird to see the Weinstein company come up a lot. I oh my god, I saw I thought the exact fucking same thing. I I remember seeing the going through the credits because I didn't know if there was like any hidden stuff at the end. There was there was a lot of female just like picture like headshots of women at the very end that was tied to the music. That was probably it, the only little it was extra thing. They were like uh, um, driver's license photos. They looked like. I don't know what they were, but yeah, there was some. I I don't know if if that was in old Grindhouse movies. I have no idea, but I remember, yeah, going to the very end and seeing the the Weinstein Company uh, LLC, and I was like, (laughs) yeah, talk about. I I feel like this is why this conversation about death proof death proof is a little more complicated than really meets the eye. You know, because it 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 came out uh, fourteen years ago, fifteen years ago. It's completely. Our cultural landscape has completely shifted. Um, 
but then yeah, I think I feel I feel like it's so complicated because on one hand, there is yes, he is he's trying to create this narrative that is a female empowerment movie, but there's clearly hypersexualization, and it can really be seen both ways. Yeah. Um, and and how you it depends on the person really at the end of the day because. Uh, yeah, I want to lean always towards, I mean, because we've seen it in his filmography before and after there's a lot of smart writing, there's a lot of good dialogue and everything usually serves a purpose. Um, that's probably where we'll segue to just talking about the the dialogue and the writing, uh, where there was a little more wallpaper, what's, what's considered wallpaper dialogue versus everything holds a purpose. Yeah. Can we get to that a little bit? Because I, I feel like that's the biggest weakness of this. I, I, the, okay, go so, ahead, shoot. So in his other films, and I'm thinking the one I always bring up a lot is one of the more recent ones, but Inglorious Bastards. The the first like that first 10, 15 minutes, or was it 20 minutes? I don't know. It, there's a lot of dialogue. Oh, the tension is but like the tension. Thick. But you can feel it because oozy. you understand what's going on and the actors they, just with their body language alone, they play such a you know brilliant role in that. And this, like you said, it's a lot of wallpaper. They could at least, and and this is one of the other things I think that that hurt it a little bit, was the runtime for Death Proof is what around two hours. I ooh, keep talking. Let yeah, me look it up I while think we, I, you could definitely cut out half an hour of this easily. Uh, it was 113 minutes, so okay. almost almost two, two hours. hours. I feel like it could have probably been a solid ninety. That's what I was I thinking too. Like. The, which um, were most of these yeah. films they, would be. they would be yeah and so yeah. to me it's a little hubris here like he's he's like i want to get out you know i'm i'm almost did my tarantino impression but i won't do it um <laughs> that's it's hard it's hard to do with unless you i can do it if i hear him you know like if i saw like a video of him i could do it right after but just doing it from memory it's tough you know i like watching people talk about fucking movies and, and i want them to sit there and, and talk and talk and talk I because disagree that's, with that's you. basically I disagree what with i you. did when i was when i'm with my friends and i'm running around talking around i just i talk about fucking movies anyway that's pretty um, good i feel like it's pretty good without having a reference point. yeah without having a reference point but um yeah no i I felt like this. He he almost just took it a little too far. It, it I, I I was starting to get bored. Sir, and I and I felt I, like he I did that in hateful way too. But yeah. Oh yeah, I would. You know, this is why um, I I find Death Proof fascinating because uh, movies like The Hateful Eight and even to a lesser extent, even a little bit of Inglorious Bastards get a lot more love. And um, not necessarily Inglorious Bastards, but definitely The Hateful Eight. I, there were so many times I was bored to tears. Yeah. A lot of people don't like to criticize, you know, us, um, you know, art connoisseurs and things like that. We we hold certain artists in this in this regard where it's it's hard to really want to criticize them. But sometimes they write, they make things, and this is a personal, you know, opinion. They make things that are. Not always going to fly. You could tell that this was made, um, and I'm talking about again about the hateful eight. This was made to be a play, you know, yeah, to be seen in a playhouse and not necessarily a movie because it was it was just so boring. Well, that's at so many times. I, I don't know if I've told you this. That's been always my argument with Tarantino is that he he really should be a playwright. He, he I mean, yeah. I think 
And that's what he is. Yeah. He always says, he always says, if I can make a story uh, in terms of writing it like I would write a novel, then he says he he's done his job. Yeah. So he writes every every movie as if it it was a novelization. Uh, and then I think, and and then he does you know whatever tactic he does to to adapt it to the screen. And I think I think a lot of it too is a lot of people love that because it's so refreshing and different. Um, it's not like yeah. Michael Bay like you know flashing well and he's not you know he famously is not uh, shy about making it very clear that he is he is uh straight up stealing a lot of other techniques and methodologies but the the difference between him and other people is he puts all of these together to make it its own thing Mm -hmm. so it's still like a jazz piece in a way uh, and it's still its own thing because he's he will he yes, he will lump so many different already true blue, um, very validated and and already uh, well regarded techniques and methodologies. Um, sometimes it would be shot for shot. I've seen I've actually seen video essays dedicated to this where it'd be shot for shot, um, like some sort of scene, and he would do it the exact same way. Yeah. But then there would be a lot of other ones like that in the movie that, you know, he can easily say, "Oh, I'm just giving a try." You well, know, I'm giving a tribute. Yeah, because it goes back to that old saying, like you know, um, a good artist borrows and a great steals. artist steals. Well, and yeah. and that's part of his whole thing because he he's very into creating homages and um, which is his whole movie. That's usually his whole movie. He he makes movies talking about movies. I mean, that's what Pulp Fiction is, if you think about it. And yeah, I mean, his Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is. You know, I have is, not seen that yet. Is an homage to old Hollywood. Yeah, I'm embarrassed uh, it to is, say I have not it seen is, it. But. Uh, it's okay, you know. Again, not my favorite. Yeah. My favorite is we should we should probably do this real quick. My favorite is Django. That's a good one. I I really like that one. Um, that's I, I was thinking about that today. It's 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 a tie between that one and um, I is uh I actually really love Kill Bill two, part two. Okay, and the reason okay. I like that one is that why why two and not one. So I think one is more like it's that homage to um, a lot of samurai films and kind of that over gore kind of. Um, oh yeah, like a comical anime. The gore the one the reason I like Kill Bill two so much it's slower paced. It's got that kung fu kind of. Uh, and western feel and i don't know what it is it's kind of like like when she's training when she's training it it's a lot like the kung kung fu but like that for some reason i love the ending of that um that whole dialogue where they're in there it's a lot like a western and uh oh yeah no i well he loves westerns that's why you know usually he's taken a uh stanley kubrick approach to his filmography where everyone is a little different except for the western yeah you know he did um he did the hateful eight um then that was technically a second western yeah yeah so you know and i and i love that that kind of feel uh but yeah i I mean and then reservoir dogs too i i love that film because um and i i picked three but um i i I saw pulp fiction first when i was growing up and i was like yeah i I, maybe i was too young to really understand but for some reason i saw reservoir dogs first yeah reservoir dogs actually did it in the in the right order yeah no i mean i saw that first oh, okay before i saw pulp fiction that one blew me away more than anything i mean it well talk about you know going back to him being more of a playwright that is a play 
on screen. Yeah. That is definitely, definitely. You know, it's kind of all in that one warehouse. You know, it's one location. Um, and stuck in the middle the of complications. You, that song or whatever it's called. <laughs> it's the complications of the character that make the tension and stuff that you only, yeah, it's, it's, it's within this uh, very contained uh, situation. And that situation is where the tension brews instead of these, yeah, these huge Michael Bay set pieces of fucking aliens and robots crashing into each other. Though that has, that has its place too, like a la Star Wars and shit Speaking like that. Speaking of that, I'm going on a T-Buck tangent quarter. Um, Let's do it. Red Letter Media one time watched like all three when there was only three Transformers films at the same time. Like they watched. Oh, right. No, <laughs> do I do you remember, remember this? this. I remember. They I watched remember them, this, tried yeah. watching them all at the same time. And it I, it was so funny. They were, they were even saying that their brains were starting to melt at one point. <laughs> yep. That sounds about yeah. right. Um I feel like this is a good segue to tone. Yep. Uh, so the writing and the characters and obviously the look of the piece create tone. Um, this was, a, you know, this is supposed to be a slasher film of the 70s, uh, which is his Quentin Tarantino, you know, style, you know, his way. And it really, uh, to me, it really isn't. It's not. Uh, I, I feel like the first act, Rewatching it again, obviously, when you watch this for the first time, you, you don't know that there's this amazing little uh, CGI slash practical uh, stunt that they do to show when Kurt Russell's, um, you know, antagonist, villainous, you know, he's the killer character killing these girls by doing a, a head on collision. But when I was rewatching it again, I just couldn't wait for that to happen. I was like, let's just get yeah. to the fucking the fucking cool part, you know, that feeling. Whereas in the second act, um, you get to the cool part a lot quicker and you, mm. um, yeah, there's still a lot of buildup and stuff like that. I would like say it's that, a lot longer, see... like the cool part, if you want to say the exciting, <laughs> yeah, like, climax is it, definitely. And essentially it's, it's uh, a great car you know, yeah, essentially, long story short, it's a it's a series of car chases, and they do it the old school way, the vanishing point way. That's why when you see these little uh, references used in the movie, and I think this is where the smart writing comes in, where he would talk about stuff that's clearly him talking. Quentin Tarantino is like, oh, I fucking grew up with vanishing point and all this stuff, and the other characters, you know, would be like looking at him inquisitively, and he would stop and be like, do you guys know what I'm even talking about and they're like no no one does because that's the audience no one like that's how i felt i was like i have no idea who so he's smart enough to know no one's gonna know all of the little intricacies and the deep dive deep cuts like he does and so he does he put that into his characters his supporting characters like i have no idea what you're talking yeah about. like i haven't heard of <clears throat> i haven't like thought of robert ehrlich since maybe <laughs> i was a teenager i saw a movie of his but like that name popping in my head, I was like, oh, man, that's a that's a reference back to like 70s, 80s kind of thing. Right. And um, I, I like what he did with um, the tone of the killer, too. He was like when he would like put in like, uh, you know, eye drops and he would sneeze. There was yeah. like a scene where he's like about to do a sneeze and it's a false alarm. And just like <laughs> breaking his, the fourth you know, wall, too. Yeah, he's just not menacing, yeah. right? Like this could be anybody. Uh, this could be your dad deciding to go on a on a killing spree well, and, through a death proof car. And that's that's part of like some of those of the humor, the humor too. in the movies back then is that 
<clears throat> some of these villains were kind of like cheesy, humorous, kind silly. of silly. Yeah, guys that you were like, what? Whatever. Well, because, you know, when you think of like the, uh, not the peak, but, you know, when I think of a slasher movie, I think of Nightmare on Elm Street mm-hmm. and Friday the 13th. Yeah. You know, the the true blue classics. And the they wanted to make those characters scary, especially when like when I mean, Friday the 13th, I feel like Jason went through so many different character choice, like whoever was playing him. They went through a lot of different character choices. But the the one that we know of today, like the heavy breathing, the like the very slow moving, fo- like unstoppable force kind of kind yeah. of uh, Jason. Um, that's menacing, right? Like that is so scary where you have Kurt Russell putting eye drops in <laughs> and i don't know there's a, something about it that that really He's wearing all these icy little hot. touches really uh yeah it really stood out to <laughs> me as like because he did a good job of not of, of coming off as um you know i think a smart killer or smart writing to make an evil character like that is is the is the wolf in sheep's clothing yeah kind of villain where you and and he but this one was taken to an extreme <laughs> the icy hot jacket the icy hot and then i just like how they did like some of the obvious product placements which is probably again an homage to doing some advertising like they do the wild turkey they show the bottle then pouring it out they have icy hot big red soda uh which is yeah something i i, I can't find the, around here but when i was growing up big red was a was a big soda that you, and, you and, had and and then also people forget that all of these movies all of these stories are in a tarantino universe yeah like when you see stuff like the cigarettes and stuff those are like you know a fake brand that he puts in all of his movies to show that this is one tied universe or like the vega brothers you know you saw that in reservoir dogs versus pulp fiction mm-hmm. things like that yeah yeah and he he did want to have like a. I remember he did want to make a Vega Brothers movie for a long time. Right, right. But Just like happened. there's, there's always this talk of, um, you know, Kill Bill Volume Three, yeah. and uh, there's a Vega Brother movies, but they're too old now. I remember him saying, "Well, these, you know, the people that played them are too like old, in their and I didn't 70s want to recast now. them." Yeah, it, not seventies. I mean, he's just what? Well, well it's, isn't uh, uh, he's got to get be Travolta's got to be up there. I don't know. Set, I don't know. I don't, I'm not going to look it up. Usually, I'm we look at, shit I'm up. Looking while it we're, up. Oh, he's okay. sixty-seven. Uh, okay, you're actually pretty close. Yeah. I thought I thought he was younger then. Well, he he had been all, around for a while. And so to, to to tie all these things together, the writing, the characters, the tone, we have unconventional film techniques being used. We touched on this a little bit. T-Buck did. Uh, now I really want to deep uh, dive deeper into it. So there is the cigarette burn kind of look. So what you have to understand is these old, when they were actually film and they're actually reels, these were taken to so many different places and they were beat up. Yeah. So to create that beat up look of this scratchy film, they had to put that in with CGI and also to create the, the feel of, I would say in the unconventional technique methods, uh, besides just the look of it, we need to talk about the editing because there would be hard cuts, hard cuts of music <laughs> in and out. Yeah. Sometimes there would be like literally a picture on screen of, you know, the like a car waiting at a, at a, you know, a a light an intersection and then it would just be gone uh going from black to white white to black uh or i mean going from black and white to color, color yeah. back to black and white um 
And my favorite is probably the title. Oh yeah, the- <laughs> <laughs> it's not. It's not. It's not called Death Proof. It was like Thunderbolt. Yeah, and then they 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 definitely spliced in Death Proof on a right. Yeah, to make it. Look it was like Thunderbolt, that. and then they yeah. There's a real, almost like a real missing kind of uh, a piece that just put in Death Proof. Yeah, it's- and so this happened a lot too with these movies. They would be renamed to uh, try to. I guess go over under like censoring and you know, when people are trying to shut them down, they're like, well, we're not that movie. We're this new movie. Yeah. Even though it was the same movie. Yeah. Renaming or sometimes they would splice in like stock footage or footage from other films and would put that in there and, and there would be some pretty nasty kind of hard cuts. Cause remember these, these were very low budget and they were, they were just trying to, shove them out like they were just trying to push them out so there wasn't really a like a an editing process which which really is can make or break a film in most cases oh my gosh Uh, if a classic example star wars um the the original (laughs) star wars apparently the first cut was a complete mess and they said that a lot of the editing that took place which was actually by with the very first one a new hope a new hope yeah in 77 um they (laughs) which was actually George Lucas's wife at the time. Um, she kind of helped save oh, a lot of the that. film. Um, yeah, there was a lot of dialogue problems too, um, <laughs> which we had all kind of figured out once uh, the prequels came out. Uh, Lucas's kind of dialogue choices sometimes. Um, and a lot of the cast actually helped out on some, especially Sir Alec Guinness. Um, anyway, I'm getting off track, but um, yeah, you would you would get <laughs> um, tangent corner, baby. But but it's all around the same time, you know, when these stuff the stuff came out. So yeah, you could those hard like really bad edits. I know like the one that I picked up on was uh, Rosario Dawson sitting on the front of the car when it switches from black and white to to color. You could see her kind of shift a little bit uh, and movement. And I can't tell what the black and white was that because they the. <laughs> Was that kind of leading to like dailies? I don't know if it was supposed to be a shift in tone, kind of black and white. You know, or did this actually happen? I was trying to look this up. Like, what was this from the dailies reel when something would happen to the actual color reel, and they didn't have time? And oh, they would have to splice like what they were the trying daily. to. They'd have to uh, do the homage to. Yeah, they would have to like maybe the actual history spli- of what something in the dailies. like that would be. Yeah uh god that's a good question i don't know i i would assume yes i i always think when i see stuff like that it's always a it's a it's a it's a tonal shift that they're trying to go i for, thought maybe it obviously was just, i didn't think about it that yeah, way yeah to me it seemed like something that turned like they ran out of tarantino yeah, ran out of like film. yeah they've ran out of film either they had the they only had black and white available or they were actually shooting dailies at the same time on a different camera and had to actually and they like lost the other lost reel, the other so reel or something. Splice yeah, the splice other it in. yeah. That's, that's a good, I don't, that's a good point. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I, I don't know is the answer, but uh, if anybody knows to tell us, but, let um, us know. Yeah. It, it's so there's a lot of like, I, I think the one thing that I like about this, I think that's probably now that we're talking about it, that's probably the smartest stuff they did to make it. look. Yeah. Old. Yeah. And, and that's probably my favorite part of this film it's just like those little easter eggs and those little hard cuts and like there there's a couple points where like you you just miss like it seems like whole sequences of of the film maybe like 10 or 15 seconds where they're like walking out of the bar and then all of a sudden they're just around the 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 car um 
Right. Which probably was either purposely done or there was damage to the the reel or they, they it was so poorly planned that they just uh jumped to other scenes you know and most of the time in in when you're making a real film you go back and fix those in reshoots or or re-edits and things like that so it's um it's pretty pretty well uh, and they're they're meticulously mapped out yeah. with the um i forgot what they're called the little cartoon they're a little like literally like the scenes are actually drawn out yeah uh storyboards um, Storyboards, yeah. yeah. These are meticulously, uh, you know, pieced together with storyboards and stuff like that. And you've probably heard of famous examples of like, you know, uh, what's his name doing? T2. He did it all himself by hand. Um, things like that. Uh, oh, the James director of T2, Avatar. Yeah, James Cameron. Uh, yeah. Him doing like all of his own storyboards by hand, I, I found, found is very fascinating. JJ Abrams we, uh, does that too. He does a lot of it. I didn't know that. Yeah. Hmm, interesting. Uh, before we uh, move on and bring this round circle and go into our gyms, uh, so I, I wanted to touch on editing a little more because uh, he has used the same one until Django. Now, uh, I think there's a reason I like Django the most, and part of that is the editing. Now, I liked uh, – so you should learn this name. Her name is Sally – it's either Minke, Minke or Minke. It's probably Minky, if anybody knows how to pronounce it. Or I apologize if I'm mispronouncing it. So Sally Minky, we'll say, has been his editor for every single film up until Django. Hmm. And it, it, I think using that same editor, it, cre- it definitely created a very, you know, when you see any of the movies before Django, uh, it definitely created a very specific look to the film and how it's edited. Even when it's edited correctly, obviously, <laughs> Death Proof was designed to not look conventional yeah. or correct. It was made to look bad. But Django, you know, is almost like it's almost edited like an action movie, you know, and it kind of is in a, in a lot, a lot of uh, ways. And that's why I think that's why I like Django the most is all of the best parts of his writing versus uh, cinematography versus you know the actors he used versus the editing versus the the practical and special effects. I feel like it really all came together in that movie where there was a lot of things I liked of those qualities in his other movies. It just didn't quite have you know this nice tied bow at the end like it did with Django Unchained. Um, and uh, and part of that is is uh, is the just the change in editing. I think mm-hmm. I, I do. I like Sally, but I, I, I definitely like what he did with his later movies without Sally. So yeah, that's all I'm going to say about that. Yeah, no, I, I'm just, you know, I'm thinking about a lot of things and, and with the editing and, and stuff like that. I'm, it, it wants, wants me to, it's making me think like how difficult, more difficult was that to add in some of these things or to kind of break that cycle? Cause I could see people like that were actually working on this film it, it becomes almost like roll your eyes or something. About yeah. It's so cool. Like the break that habit and some of these things. Um, but it's, it, it, yeah, it's definitely my favorite part of this whole series. And, and like you said, I, I, it, it, it does get a little, probably it's not as appreciated enough. Um, but you know, I think that's okay in some instances because again, not everybody's going to get everything. You're not going to hit a home run out of the park every time, but some of these underappreciated things, like just in music, some of the underappreciated albums you find over time that they become more appreciated overall. 
Yeah, it, uh, time is the is the all time healer yeah. of of art of un, a misunderstood art, yeah. right? Some of the best things ever, including film, you know, film, traditional fine art, definitely music, never were hits out of the gates. Yeah. It took 10, 15, 20 or more years for them people to be like, oh, this is this is really fucking good. And a lot of the problem is we've talked about this in other episodes uh, of our show. And people don't know how to react to new art. They don't get it. Yeah. You know, I, I hate to, that makes it that that that's our pretentious side coming out. They don't fucking get it, um, but they, they don't. Uh, uh, but just to bring this discussion round circle before we uh, go into our outros and stuff is um, I, I did want to, you know, the beginning and end, the heart and soul of any piece like this uh, begins and ends with writing. And I don't know if the narrative arcs, <laughs> how silly they were for things to get, you know, in smart writing. There is distinct ways and there's logical ways things lead to other things, you know, cause and effect ratios and leading into other actions and things like that to create arcs where, you know, like there's whole scenes where you're probably saying to yourself, why are they doing this? Or how is this leading into this? And I think I, I would say that's purposeful as well. I don't think he was like lazy, you know, because you hear that in writing all the time. There's lazy writing, um, like, because plot. A lot of people say that now. Yeah. Because, well, plot happened, and this needed to happen, so we're here now. Whereas in his movies, uh, there's a lot more uh, meaningful ways to move those characters through the narrative. Where in this one, uh, yeah, I think he purposefully would, you know, when they were trying in the second act, when uh, Zoe Bell's character was trying to convince... Um, the uh, the other female character to to just you know borrow the car and do ship's mast and stuff yeah. like that and the reasoning was like i'll crack your back it's like i'll crack your back and i'll be your slave <laughs> and i think in like any other movie it's like because that was it when you think about what was the one thing that led to the rest of the car chase and everything all of these amazing set pieces that was it yeah her saying i will i'll crack your back if if you'll do this for me. And she was like, okay, <laughs> I found that so funny. Yeah. I was, she was just like, okay, I'll do that for you. And then they go on this event. They do the fun part. Yeah. Right. And what's cool is, uh, you know, Zoe Bell is a real stunt, stunt yeah. actress. They, um, they met um, on kill bill because Zoe Bell was uh, Uma Thurman's stunt double stunt double. And, and she didn't really, this was her very first role. Like our first starring role. role, yeah, starring role, yeah, and uh, she famously didn't know how big it was until she started seeing billboards like with her name and shit on them. Be like, oh, okay, this is fucking, <laughs> this is big time. Uh, how cool would that? I, be? I like, think it's really cool, woman, and because especially when you're bringing out because stunt stunt doubles and stunt, you know, they've been getting more um, appreciation lately. Like with social media, you see a lot of. Uh, the actors taking pictures with their stunt doubles and kind of saying, okay. you know, they're doing a lot of the hard work. I'm, I'm just the pretty face here, but uh, yeah, I think it's always cool. Well, that's, you need to see once upon a time in Hollywood. It's, it's yeah. essentially a, a, not a buddy cop. It's not a cop movie, but it's like a buddy cop dynamic between an actor and a stunt double. Yeah. I think you knew that part. I though, did right? know that you knew the, you knew the premise. I knew, I knew right? the premise of it. Um, okay. And I know it has something to do with, um, the 
a little bit with Charles Manson stuff, but um, yeah, yeah, but I, um, yeah, no, I, I still need to watch it. It's it's on the it's on the list of uh, yeah things to watch. I have so many things I've been watching. Yeah. Lately. Oh God, there's too much content. Uh, even us, even even us doing the show. It's too, it's too I have much, my Star Wars cartoon right now. <laughs> I have Loki. <laughs> I mean, that's yep. You better just you better just uh, give give up to I the to the Hollywood gods. They you have had to, to buy the Black you, Widow. You have no life outside of yep. You have no life outside of what they want you to watch. But anyways, yep. let's bring this uh, let's bring this home because I'm not even sure. I feel like in our pre shows, I'm not even sure if I convinced you, T Buck, that this, <laughs> this movie deserves more love. Now that we've talked about it for almost an hour. Tell the people, did they need to see it again? Does it deserve more love? I still am on the side of this does not deserve as much hate as it gets or criticism. Uh, I think it's some of his better work a lot of the times. You know, when I really, really think about it, um, there's a lot going on here. And so what do you, what side are you still, are you still um, on the Well, what, the I, what I was going to say is, does it deserve the hate that it receives? No. Okay, good. Does it reserve? Does it need to be more praised or more, uh, or more um, seen in a different light? Examined. I, I think it's in a good spot. I, I think it's that it's it's. Um, I, I think it's in a good spot to for people to reexamine. No, it. I just I think it's in this in the place where it should be. I I, ah, I don't. This is not okay. my favorite uh, film. I think the technical things that they did is what I like uh mostly about that but i mean it's it was it's it's perfectly i think it's it's in a good it's perfectly where it's where it should be um in his filmography filmography because it is intentionally supposed to be bad um (laughs) it's and a lot of people think it's really bad yeah a lot of people's really Uh, bad but but that's why i say it shouldn't get the hate that it, it it receives because it was intentional and and you should appreciate yeah. it for that. Is it the greatest movie you ever made? Well, that's Tarantino movie? That, that's no, where absolutely. I feel like we we almost need another episode. That's where it still gets criticized, even even as I mean, obviously, I imagine there is a percentage of people that don't know that it was made to be a B movie or C movie, and they see it and like this fucking sucks. But of I'm saying of the camp of critical thinkers that really that know it was made to be this way still don't like it. Well, yeah, and I can't help those. That's people where that that's where it gets complicated get it because that frustrates me. Those are like the people that think that Titanic actually the the film Titanic that Jack and everybody were actual <laughs> real people. Um, yeah, I. I don't know. It, it's 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 hard for me to say. I mean, because yeah, it, it's it, it. Oh, so a great example of the okay, Starship Troopers. Yeah. And I feel oh, like God, we need I to love, have a show just on that. I love. Oh yeah, oh but, yeah, I'd be down for that. I fucking love that, that movie, movie. But is, it's made to be kind of a a silly. It, it's it, uh, it's an intentional movie, it, and people did not get that. They thought it was an action movie. That was and that was just a really bad low budget kind of or it wasn't low budget, but kind of a corny, cheesy action movie, sci-fi action movie. And it was not. It was a satire. I mean, they purposely lit the sets to make it look like 90210. Like they they <laughs> they really did. And they picked the actors and everything because it was a satire about fascism and 
and and things like yeah. that and that's why i love it um i think it's the same thing with this is you know it's it's purposely meant to be bad and it's supposed to look bad and if people don't get that and appreciate that that's what drives me more nuts than anything so i so i'm not yeah. saying that it, it should be in this canon of like great movies but it's exactly in the place that it should be it is a okay. it's a good example so hmm, i think a good conclusion conclusionary point is to just leave it up to the viewer so yeah. uh, if, if there's anybody out there that has not seen this yet at least do yourself a artistic favor it. and and give it a try. Yeah, give it Especially a watch. If you like Tarantino and, stuff, yeah, and come to your own conclusions. I feel like yeah, that's I feel like that's another thing is of the people that are huge Tarantino fans, they've seen everything except this. So if you haven't seen this, uh, go ahead and do yourself that favor. See it. Let us know what you think and come to your own conclusions. We'd love to hear them. So thank you so much for listening. As always, we appreciate you. But before we go, of course, we have a little more, a little icing on the cake, a little cherry on top with what we call the gym of the week. If you don't know what the gym of the week is, it's essentially something we like to talk about here in our show, but it doesn't always fit into the overall scheme of the main body of the show. We like to talk about it here at the end. Mine is uh, Mine is closely tied to the movie uh i i would say if you don't have the patience to see the actual grindhouse feature a double feature um at least i mean do that see the grindhouse feature but make sure you pay special attention to the fake trailers they made mm -hmm. for it so they got their other friends eli roth and all these other guys to make these little tiny you know few minute trailers and it plays between the movies and some of those movies were so or some of those trailers were so well like they made actual movies from them i'm gonna i'm gonna let you figure out what they are it'll be a little puzzle uh but even if you don't see the movie just fucking youtube it okay just youtube the trailers they're fun they're campy they're so many different talk about homages again and i think you'll have so much fun watching them awesome buck um i so going through this like one thing I, that kept bringing like kind of popping in my mind was um was was a lot of these exploitation movies and kind of the, the some of the um later on uh some of the studios that were behind it and one mm -hmm. if you especially have watched a lot of kind of b movies especially in the late 70s 80s uh they were yeah. all made by uh a lot of them uh, were made by a, a company called Canon Films. Um, so there's a documentary out there called Electric Boogaloo, The Wild Untold Story of Canon Films that I highly suggest. Hmm. And if you don't know who Canon Films are, uh, they're the ones that did like the Death Proof, uh, not Death Proof, um, sorry. is it Was it Death Proof? It's the, um, I'm trying to think of what it is. Death Wish, sorry. Death Wish. Death Wish. Gosh. Okay. Yeah. De the Death Wish movies. Not the Bruce Willis one. The old, the old Death, movies. Death yeah. The the, yeah. the one starring. Um, uh, I know. Charles I don't know Bronson. his name. I know. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So yeah. I, I can see that mustache in my yeah, mind. I think about that they mustache. Did a, I'm like that. They guy. did a lot of the uh, Chuck Norris films, like Delta Force and American Ninja. Hell yeah. Some of those. Oh, I love uh, definitely Ninja. check it out. It's 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 kind of fun. There's. There's a lot of documentaries about this area. There's also uh, Roger Corman. He has one. He was a famous 
director at that time. He has a documentary about him as well, but uh, check those out. Um, <laughs> they kind of go through the craziness and how these companies actually end up making some pretty big and ended up making some pretty big movies uh, by the end of the run. But uh, just interesting mm-hmm. how they came up through this B movie world and, and uh, this mm. exploitation uh, era and kind of started making bigger Hollywood movies. There you go. Yeah. Okay. Very good. Well, uh, um, another thoughtful gem from T buck. He always gives us thoughtful gems. I love it. Well, thank you guys again so much for listening. You of course can follow us at all of our socials. That's at underscore Novo underscore day and day is D E and at Novo day media. You can check out some of our products at Novo day productions.com. There you'll find the entropy sessions, adulteration and post meridium and much more to come. And until, uh, till next time guys, uh, just, you know, you know, the drill, be good to each other. And as always, good luck and Godspeed. We love you. Art of the Beholder is brought to you by Novo Day Productions. Created and hosted by Novo Day and the Novo Day Collective. Facebook.com slash Novo Day Media. At Novo Day Media on Twitter and Instagram. Music by A Company. Facebook.com slash Aco Music 123. Aco on Spotify. Logo designed by Tom Justice, J-E-S-T-U-S, of thejusticecompany.com and executively produced by Clayton Anderson. All rights reserved.